Welcome to The Hybrid Model. William Butler Yeats argued that education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. This week, Jessica and I talk about moving back from virtual learning, what it is to be an American, the trauma of being a teacher, and how to deal with those pesky, angry emails. Welcome to episode four of The Hybrid Model. Uh, the hybrid model, everybody. Uh, I think we have a lot of stuff uh, to discuss because it's been a few weeks since we recorded last. So, Jessica, we're just coming back from a two-week mandatory post-Thanksgiving quarantine. How have the last few weeks been for you? Uh, they've been all over the place, really. Uh, I think, like as you mentioned, we've been 100% remote for two weeks while well, we had our days off for Thanksgiving break and then two weeks of being completely virtual. And now we're back in hybrid mode. Uh, we've been back in hybrid mode for a couple of days. So things are a little crazy around here. Uh, yeah, like real crazy. Uh, how Have you found that the kids have weathered that storm okay? I think so. When my students came back on Monday, I don't know what i was expecting but they were exactly the same as they've been all year (laughs) they were you know just sort of kind of some of them give me head nods when i ask them questions and they just sort of just this even keel that they've been yeah yeah Yeah, i think uh i don't know i i think the actual um two weeks was tough on a lot of them because they uh i don't know they pretty much said that right like uh, they didn't show up and uh, not all of them at least and their their work school family balance was all out of whack so uh i think i i genuinely think they were just excited to be back at school you know yes so uh, i get it i get it so i i think probably to help clarify uh those of you joining us for the first time Welcome to The Hybrid Model. Both Jessica and I teach in a suburban high school in Kansas City, Missouri, and it just so happened that um, we we saw a relatively high spike in COVID, and the district made the decision to hold everybody out for two weeks. And we were like... uh, we were kind of on our own because the other two districts that kind of go along with our decisions made the opposite choice. What did, what did you think of all that? I was actually really surprised. And, and one of my students has an older sibling who teaches at one of those high schools in a neighboring school district. And she told me that they were given or they were sent an email that basically said, we are not closing in-person school we will continue to be. They're they're also in a hybrid model, so 
they will also can they will continue to be in that hybrid model they're not going to shut down so that was kind of surprising sort of i think i always just base it off of the the snow day calls right so yeah, right, we right. always you know when we're ra- when we're waiting around in the evenings when it's snowing like oh that district called it that means we're also going to call it so yeah i was i was really surprised that we were the only district in our area who made that decision yeah i i and you know, again, I, I think Jessica and I don't always agree with every decision made at central office uh, or, you know, even at, at the building level. But for the most part, I think uh, we they have taken pretty good care of us and have made wise choices. And I think this is probably uh, a great example of one of those wise choices. You know, I agree. Absolutely. It was hard, really hard, but I think it was the right choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it took some, it took some, I, I don't know, some gumption or whatever to, to be like, hey, I appreciate you guys are doing something different than what we are doing, but this is going to keep teachers safe, kids safe, and it's paid off, man. Like, uh, I we came back, which I think is the 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 real miracle here, is every child I talked to beforehand was nervous and scared. Uh, that we would be like we were in the spring and, you know, like have like the never ending spring break. We would have yeah, the never right. ending Thanksgiving break, <laughs> yeah, but that didn't happen. Yeah. We're back. Yeah. And uh, I, I was very thankful, very, very thankful to be able to come back, you know? So uh, some of that may be, I was also in charge these last two weeks because my wife teaches at one of those sister districts that didn't shut down. And, uh, like, so she got to go to school, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, it was me at home with the four-year-old and 13-year-old. And uh, daddy school is no fun uh, for me or for either of them. So I, I almost skipped a school on Monday. And I'm like, see ya. Bye. <laughs> so my son wasn't home. So I actually came into the school building to work on a lot of those days. So, um, and it was it was nice. There were, I don't know. 10 other people in the building maybe so i just stayed in my little corner of my classroom all day all by myself and the lights have motion sensors so all of a sudden you know like you're just plunged in darkness because there's nobody moving around because there's nobody here yeah yeah it uh i don't know makes you want to take a nap or (laughs) Or it also tells you like get get up literally move around around. (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah i like it i like it well, we've got uh, a bunch of stuff to talk about. I am dying. Uh, the first time you kind of add to our script here was about an assignment that you gave. Can you describe that? Yes. Uh, I don't want to monopolize our conversation here. So jump in. Oh, no, you're good. Jump Do in it. if Do I it. get a little long-winded. But I, I mentioned, I think in our last episode, that uh, we were going to do a nonfiction mini unit. I was going to bring in some some things from some marginalized voices. And what I ended up creating was a mini unit around the essential question, what does it mean to be an American? And what I did was um, I had a few other sort of follow-up questions that I had students answer before we started reading some different pieces. And we read a piece by a Frenchman who had immigrated here in the 1700s. And he basically wrote an open letter to 
other Europeans saying, hey, uh, this country is great and you should come here. You, you don't have to serve any lords and masters. You get to live off the land. Uh, this place is great. You all should come to America. Uh, you can be Dutch or French or English or Norwegian, and you can all like mate and mix, and it's amazing. And we create this uh, melting pot that is America. So that's basically what he wrote. So of course, you know, when I when my students read this, I'm like, who's left out of this conversation? We talk so much about, you know, who tells the story matters. And, you know, this is one of the perfect examples. So then, of course, after that, we read a piece by um, uh, a, a native person. So it's actually from a book called There, There by Tommy Orange. And just a side note, if we were to add a novel into our American literature curriculum, it would be this one. If you told me I had to choose one, it would be that one. And so we read... You said There, There called, by Tommy yeah, Orange. Yeah, There, There by Tommy Orange. And it's um, the parts that I had my students read were um, just sort of the, the history of Thanksgiving and uh, a lot of the genocide and just sort of how... Uh, some of our native populations are affected still. So that was the second one we read. And then we also read uh, two poems by black men, uh, very different structures. One of them is by Clint Smith, and it's called Counterfactual. And it's about um, when he, like a young black boy playing with other black boys with their super soakers, and dad comes out and says, you know, you don't get to do that. You know, only white boys get to do that kind of thing. Uh, the next poem we read was called Landless Acknowledgement by Nate Marshall. And the whole idea in that poem, basically saying, you know, black people don't really have a homeland in the way that, you know, some of the descendants of white immigrants have a homeland. Uh, and then lastly, we read a piece from a book called Undocumented, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just voices of undocumented youths, teenagers here in America. And uh, it's like, it's conversational. So they're basically transcripts of conversations that they're having with each other. Uh, the And the one we read were um, from DACA recipients. So, oh. um, so one of the issues came actually to another teacher who also did this unit with me. And I don't know the student, I don't know the parent, but she received a parent email basically saying, um, why would you do this to us before going to Thanksgiving break? What are we supposed to do with this, this information? Um, and again, this wasn't an email sent to me, so this wasn't something that I could engage with. I just talked to the other teacher about it. But I had a moment where I thought, oh my goodness, this might be the first time this parent's child has read or discussed the actual history of Thanksgiving. And yeah. maybe, and I think that that was just a moment for me where I thought I made an assumption that all of my students were aware that Thanksgiving is not this palatable holiday that we make it seem. And I think I was wrong about that. So, yeah. so again, not my student. I don't know who the student was or the parent, but I thought, oh, this might have been yeah. like a, a, a moment of uh, realization that has yeah. never come up in the student's 15 or 16 years of life. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the verbiage of that email is really interesting. And if I'm reading into it, you know, like it sounds like... 
Dude, holidays have been really rough the last four years for a myriad of reasons. And, and this is something that I think we've talked about off mic before. But my, my family um, has some conservative members. It has some liberal members. The, the two have not gotten along, and a lot of it has to do with um, – how things have gone the last four years, you know, and we had the election and now we have the first major holiday since the election coming up. I would imagine uh, people that were having big family gatherings were probably reckoning with uh, the politics of, you know, of, of change and the politics of what has what has happened. And to give youth an added perspective to bring to the dining room table for you and I is like exactly why we do our job, right? Like that's, that's what is exciting for a lot of families. I can see a lot of families, not necessarily conservative, but a lot of families that are rigid in their orthodoxy see that maybe as a threat, you know, as an added thing that they have to deal with in an already complex holiday weekend does that make yes. sense at all yes it does yeah, yeah. And, and i think yeah again i didn't actually read the email so you could be right i i really don't know but i i thought about so what that led me to think about was sort of what what consequences come about when we really delve into some of our anti-racist or anti-oppressive teaching practices um and sort of how does that snowball into our students' families and what does that look like. But then from the other perspective, I started thinking about what that means for me as a teacher of color and right. when I get pushback yeah. on things like that and how do I handle it. And actually another uh, black woman teacher that I follow on Twitter actually tweeted something about that. Like, can we talk about the traumatization of our marginalized teachers when we start talking about these things and we get pushback from students and parents. And so that really got me thinking. And I, what ended up happening was one of my students read that undocumented piece. And I basically, I give them creative projects to do. Um, I'm all about student choice. So usually when we do something that's sort of an assessment at the end of a unit, they have several different options to choose from. And one of the options they had with this one was a blackout poem. So if you don't know what a blackout poem is, you choose words and phrases that you want to keep in an existing piece of text and blackout everything else. So then you end up creating a poem from this already existing piece. So the student chose to do that with that undocumented piece of text that we read and what he chose to leave in were things like, we knew it was wrong. We knew this was a privilege to be here we know we didn't deserve things like that. I mean, which, you know, completely out of context if you don't read the entire piece. And it's kind Oof. of heartbreaking, right? Yeah. I mean, when you think about, oh man, the students that we have who are here and maybe undocumented or their parents, I think about my student who talked about her grandmother coming from Cuba who didn't have papers for a long, long time and so that, I mean, that really got to me. I'm still thinking about it and it still makes me yeah. sad. Oof. And, you know, and it's hard. How do you address something like that? So I think that's that really got me thinking about sort of what is my role when students push back when I'm trying to teach them these things. So that's yeah. that was really kind of hard for me. Just yeah. 
you know, I want to wow. call this student and say, because he's an online student, and I want to call him and say, no, but I, I can't do that. I mean, I have to allow him to read these things I put in front of him and come up, come to his own conclusions. And that's the conclusion that he came to. And that's hard. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. I don't know that student, and I don't know this particular assignment or, you know, any of that. But is it possible? It sounds like he went through and highlighted these specific moments of shame. You know, that's what it – and shame is is such a powerful and negative influence to what we are doing. Um, like, even as a parent, like, it seems like in the 80s or, you know, 70s or maybe, I don't know, even before then – like shame was used as a uh, a way to you know create good behavior and that kind of stuff and I don't think that's overly positive now. So, anyways, it it sounds like he has isolated these unique moments of shame. Do you think it would be worth it or possible to engage that kid in like when when he has felt shame and why that's bad? I I don't know. I'm 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 grasping for straws of something positive you know some way to open his 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 mind i don't know i think in a in a different school year the answer is yes i think if yeah. if the student weren't 100 percent online if this weren't a mini unit right before thanksgiving if i had the time to actually engage and expand on this and allow them allow my students to engage with each other in a really positive productive way and again i think you mentioned uh, maybe two episodes ago about just being anchors for our students, but also our students can be anchors for each other, right? So when they talk yeah. about their own personal experiences and anyway, that didn't happen. And just, I think yeah. the the issues that are <laughs> this school year, this dumpster fire <laughs> of a school year have really limited me. And so I I got to a point where I felt like, you know, Jessica, I think it's time for you to let this go. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, all I can do are certain things at this point and and that's that's just where we are. Uh but that well, yeah, I I yeah. that really sat with me for a long time. Yeah. Well, and it I think it it leads into another thing you jotted down here that I think is it it, it bears a larger discussion which is um the type of work that we do on a regular basis and the type of teachers I think you and I both uh, aspire to be uh, are the type that see the the trauma that our kids go through on a regular basis or that happen to us individually, right? And, like, I, I think that we have some unprocessed trauma as teachers to work through and that offers a really unique perspective on teachers of color and how, I don't know, like how many times can you, can you run up against that brick wall? How many times can you get a microaggression or, you know, whatever it is until like that shit adds up, you know, and, and how do we process that and how do we move on? And I, I think as we mentioned in the last episode, like that, that's our primary job. I, I see over the next 18 months to two years is, to try to figure out, you know, how we move on from all of this. That's what I've really been grappling with, I think, for the last month or so, is sort of just how this is affecting me as a black woman. Um, 
and how I can continue this work without burning out. And I got to say, I think the biggest thing for me is knowing that I have support, that I have support among my colleagues, but also among my administrators. Um, I, you know, this is when I created this unit, you know, everybody else in my cohort sat down and we talked about it. I shared everything with everyone and our administrator. We have a particular administrator who joins our meetings and he, you know, was all in favor of it and, you know, in his very administrator way is like, are we using the textbook? Are we (laughs) adhering to the standards and all that? Um, So, yeah, I mean, so knowing that, you know, I present these things and I'm doing this for a specific reason and having the support of the people who I know I need to defend me should should things get crazy, I think that's a big deal. Um, I'm sure, I mean, we're all friends with teachers who don't teach in our district or in our building, and I don't think that same level of support, or I, I know that same level of support does not exist in every other school. Um, yeah. And I actually, I just retweeted this maybe this morning or last night, um, and I can't remember who tweeted it, but it was something like, it's really difficult to make changes in education when we're talking about being anti-racist and anti-oppressive and wanting to disrupt certain things. But it's much, much harder when you don't work in a place that also values those things. Sure. So um, so that's important. I, I keep thanking this place for allowing me to to branch out and take risks. Um, and and to that end, I think I I think I'm, we're ready to talk about the liberal indoctrination. <laughs> Can we talk about that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's go. <laughs> so that the Ind- indoctrinate me, Jessica. Let's go. <laughs> the previous email uh, that I talked about was not from one of my students, but I did receive a, a parent email from one of my students, and that was the subject line: liberal indoctrination. And at least you knew what you were gonna get, you know. <laughs> Like that's that's not going to be like, hey, uh, Jared misses email or you know this assignment. How can he make it up? <laughs> you know, like you know what you're getting. All right, let's go. And the biggest complaint was, you know, <laughs> how do I even word this? Like, stop indoctrinating my child with your liberal agenda is basically what the email was. And it is not. I think this is. I'm going to paraphrase what you said in a previous episode, which is there are things that we teach that are in line with our students, parents, values, and teachings. And there are also things we teach that are not in line with those things. And it's not our role or responsibility to make sure that we're teaching in line with our students, parents, values. Sure. Um, And that was really kind of what I went back to after I read this email, pretty lengthy email, by the way. Um, but and I'm not I don't really engage with things like this. I'm not one to argue with parents and get into battles and because I feel like that's not that's not my role. Right. right, um, right. <clears throat> but I, I really want to say things like so it, it's not indoctrination when we read about the white dude who's like, hey, America's really great and you guys should come here. But it is indoctrination when we start reading a conversation among students who are DACA recipients. Okay, like there's just such a disconnect there that I think, you know, what about the liberal parent who says, don't let my kid read this white dude? You know, I just like there's a weird sort of like 
I wish that this parent could step back and see what I'm doing, which is, hey, there's a common theme or a common concept, and we're going to read about it from five or six or seven different angles, and I'm going to let your student decide what that means to them. I'm going to help them be a better critical thinker based right. on reading all these different perspectives. And um, just like, and that's then that brought me back to the student who highlighted all of these things where like these DACA recipients shouldn't be here. Like that was the choice he made. I mean, he read all of these things and doubled down on his original opinion. And that's, that's what I got. And I, I wish that this parent could see it from that angle, like this angle of, yeah. you know, here's one thing we're talking about. And Mrs. Greider has now brought in all of these different things for students to read and decide what they think about them, as opposed to you're trying to get my child to think a certain way, which is not yeah. the case. Yeah, man. Um, so I've had that same problem, not so much in the last five or 10 years, uh, but especially in my first five or 10 year at Park Hill, I got it quite a bit. And I, I, I always approached those conversations like my, my job is not to indoctrinate your child in your belief or in my belief, which may or may not be different than yours, but my job is to provide the tools necessary that they can make their own. And the, the, the important thing to acknowledge in that conversation is sometimes that will align with my viewpoint sometimes it will align with mom and dad's viewpoint and sometimes it won't align with either one i don't care in as much as uh, are they using the the skills and the tools that i have provided and i've always framed things uh it, it just happens to be conservative parents but certainly there, there could be a, a liberal one that might be opposed to a particular argument or something that we're discussing but like at the end of the day, if you are strong in your faith, both spiritual and political or whatever it may be, then arming your children, our children, with this, the rational skills to make good decision making uh, should only benefit your side, right? <laughs> like if you are on the righteous side or whatever you want to call it, right? And I don't believe necessarily that there is a righteous or an uh, you know, uh, uh, immoral side or whatever. I, I certainly could make that argument on an individual basis. But, like, man, at the end of the day, you don't want your 17-year-old kid ju just following uh, your own, you know, mom and dad's political beliefs just because they're mom and dad's political beliefs. See, and I, I, think, <laughs> I think there are parents who legitimately would disagree with you and say, no, I do yeah. want my 17-year-old to do exactly what I want them to do and believe exactly what I believe and not question any other angles or perspectives. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's it's something that you so and I don't different. understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Because I have like a 13-year-old, right? And uh, I, I, we're starting to develop our own views on things. And, and we have, like, a set of family values, right? Like, <laughs> they are not necessarily traditional, uh, you know, what we would call family values. But they are things that we believe in at our core. And if he believes in those things at his core, right, and chooses a different political path, 
he won't be invited to Thanksgiving dinner, but we can still. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I tease, but <laughs> but like, man, at some point you gotta let him go. At some point they're gonna be their own things, man. And I think that is the joy of what we get to do is is watch that happen, you know. And I know it's really difficult for parents to see that transformation always as a positive thing because the drudgery of being a parent sucks sometimes, <laughs> you know, like soccer practice during the week and, and fights about how late you can stay up and, you know, whether you've done your homework, get in the way of seeing that growth. But God damn, it's really cool when you get to see it. Yeah, I, I see. And I think that's great. I think one of the really great things I think about teaching high school is so much change happens between 14 and 18. Yeah, and we get yeah. to see it. And it's fantastic. I've, I, I have a special place in my heart for ninth graders. I love teaching freshmen, which is not a popular opinion around here, but I love it. <laughs> and part of the reason I love it so much is because when they come here as 14 and 15 year olds, they they really are not, they don't know who they are. They're still exploring, they're figuring things out. High school is such a big transition. And by the time they leave here, like when, when they all come back on that last day of senior year and they're like, oh, I'm gonna miss you, Miss Grider. I'm like, oh my God, you used to be so small and you had no idea what you were yeah. doing. It was amazing. And I love that. Yeah. I think that's so cool, so cool. Um, and I, I think it's hard to see that from a parent perspective because again, you just want your kid to be a certain way. And when they start doing their own thing, that's hard. But yeah. I wish like this parent, I mean, I think they're like you mentioned, you guys have these family values. And I think that you kind of have to start trusting in yourself as a parent exactly, and saying yeah, like, yeah. okay, I have instilled this in my child. And so you let them learn and explore new things when they're at school. And then you allow them to come home and talk to them about what they what they read, what they talked about in school, what that means for you as their parent, what that means in your family. I mean, I think that's that's just such a missed opportunity when you say, "No, my my child is not going to read this. My child is yeah, not going to do yeah. this particular assignment." I when you're just completely cutting them off from new things, um, I think you're that's just a huge disservice to them. Okay, so so let's play a little thought experiment here. All right. Uh, there are conservative teachers, okay? We may or may not know a handful of them. <laughs> so let's assume that uh, there is an incredibly conservative uh, teacher that sends home an incredibly conservative assignment, okay? Um, that, that would be the opposite of, you know, um, the, the type of teaching that we do. Would you send an email uh, to that, you know, to, to that teacher if you felt like it was, I don't know, if it was oppressive, if, if, if it was <laughs> like d just, you know, really classist or racist or sexist <laughs> or whatever? Would you do that? I, I'll tell you my answer. Uh, yes, 100 <laughs> percent. I would. Right. Go, but I want to hear well, your opinion. Well, I think opinion. that. Um... Uh, my answer also, my very easy short answer is also yes. And I've also already participated in this thought experiment with other black parents. Um, oh, so actually this right. comes up around. So I <laughs> this is going to sound so silly, but I'm, I'm in a couple of mom groups on Facebook and one of them is very specific. It's for 
black mothers of biracial children. <laughs> so, okay. um, All right. so we actually talked about this a lot around Thanksgiving because a lot of them have school age children. My son is not in school yet, but a lot of them have school age children. And there are a lot of elementary lessons around Thanksgiving time that are about, um, you know, so grateful to the Indians who provided food for the pilgrims and this, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. that sort of really outdated Thanksgiving lesson. And um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, we have to start in kindergarten. Like we can't allow our, our kindergarten teachers to tell our students this because it's not true. I mean, we're, we're just yeah. completely whitewashing the history here um, to make it more palatable. And I think that and that's wrong. I think that's wrong. So so a lot of parents do things like, okay, my student brought this assignment home. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in a five-year-old way so that they understand what's going on. And, you know, maybe they'll do the hand feather assignment, which is also ridiculous. Um, but I'm going to send a note or I'm going to send an email and say, hey, this is something that you should consider when doing things like I mean, Because I think a lot of it is – I don't think there are a lot of teachers who are legitimately malicious and want to ignore history. I think there are a lot of teachers who went through the same education system that we did and just don't know. Yeah. And so yeah, sure. I, I think there's there's something to informing other people in a respectful way that, hey, this is actually what happened. Or, you know, you get this every year, like the teacher who assigns like the – question about what would you do if you were a slave or whatever and just like how incredibly insensitive and traumatic that is to black students and like it's important to acknowledge so yes as an extension to my yes answer this is <laughs> this is why um i would i would send the email but as a teacher yeah. i it would be very polite and respectful and just you know yeah well i i i always uh so my oldest plays really uh competitive soccer okay and uh, I keep a banter with the referees. It's never, um, it's it's never abusive. It's never uh, anything but kind and cordial, right? And I, it irritates the hell out of my wife, who just <laughs> likes to sit and watch the game, right? Uh, and and I've always said, look, the other side is going to yell and scream at the at the referee, right? They're gonna, you missed this call, and blah blah blah. They just need to be reminded that there is another side, right? Like there just needs to be some positive pressure on the other side of things. And I think uh, my default position is to a always side with the teacher, but also like I think other people that have my political viewpoints just tend to be. Um, quieter we're less angry we're you know like and and so like i think it's really important in those moments to exert some positive pressure in the other direction and just be like hey um uh i'm not coming for your job i'm not you know like i'm i'm not doing anything crazy but here is this positive pressure that i am almost obligated to present as a counterbalance right as this countervailing weight because I think it exists so much on the other side. But I, I don't know. I agree with you. I think that there's um, – there. yeah, I think balance is the word. I mean, there has to be – there yeah. has to be a balance. Um. <laughs> this this turned into a uh, parenting podcast uh, episode, right? Teachers are like, this is horseshit. So, uh, so uh, fellow teachers, um, let's, let's 
move back to some of the things we have centered on our script, which is we got, I think, the excellent news last week that uh, the state was no longer going to require standardized tests in those basic areas where we've had like end of course exams and whatnot. However, you have some news locally on that front. So as I understood it from DESE, Department of Elementary and Secondary Education here in Missouri, they were not going to require the standardized test in the same way that they have in years past. However, they wanted to, or they want to make sure there's some sort of assessment so they can have comparative data in the future. And they were going to leave it up to districts or like the local authority to decide. So we are still moving ahead as planned with our standardized test. I teach a course that has an end of course exam. So uh, for you non-Missouri folks, it's basically like the, um, I mean, yeah, just like every other end of year standardized test that you would take in specific grades. So here in Missouri, I think it's like second and fourth grade and then middle school. And then we have these at the high school level. So um, for English language arts too, it is a, it's three, it's a three part test. There's reading, writing, and listening. And it's, um, it's, in my opinion, it's like a reading stamina <laughs> test. It's so okay. lengthy. And this coming from, you know, a 30 something English teacher who loves to read. When I take these practice tests, I'm so bored. It's so, really? I mean, it just, there's so much reading packed into this amount of time. It's like you read a short story and it's got four questions. And now you have to read another short story that has three questions. And then you have to read a poem and it's got two. Qu I mean, it's just like there are only 40 something questions, but there's so much reading involved. So that's really kind of my biggest issue with this standardized test is a lot of my students could probably do really well if they had a reasonable amount of reading to do in this two hour time span. But it's so long. They get so tired. Yeah. They a lot of them just don't have the reading stamina to be able to do that, to be able to do well on this test in the way that they could. So, you know, yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed that we're still moving forward with it. Uh, our online students have to physically be in the building to take the test. So there isn't an option for them to stay home and take the test online. So um, that's just another added thing, like another, you know, I got to proctor a test on a day when my online students physically come into the building. And that's that's where we are. Yeah. Oof. Uh, I my, my hope is we are rapidly moving away from where we were two decades ago. Right. Like. Uh, the bottom line is I've, I've voted for Obama. I'm, I think I like to think of myself as a pretty progressive guy, but from an education standpoint, he's his administration continued the George W. Bush uh, administration's like strong push for you know assessments and standardized tests. And I don't I don't think we serve any. I don't think we serve our clientele and I don't think we serve our teachers by using uh, that kind of data-driven approach as much anymore. And I think this will be the great disruption, right? Like uh, I was listening to the Kansas City Stars podcast yesterday and they had their education reporters on 
and they were citing a couple of um, professors and some other studies that were like, look, this is like generational, the, the, the type of impact because of COVID and everything else uh, is generational, that we will have to think, rethink the way education is going to be assessed moving forward because there are these kids that have uh, been taught differently. They framed it like being taught poorly this last year and a year or so. And I, I, I think that is an argument of uh, forum and not necessarily of content because like, I think they have been taught differently, but I would definitely beg to differ that they were taught um, using, you know, using inferior means or whatever. They've just have learned different stuff. So how do we frame these common assessments now that were not created to test for that? And it sure seems like we are presenting these uh, English tests from, you know, what feels like 1975 now to a group of 2020 students that have just lived through this uh, ginormous experience. So, yeah, I, I I think I texted you, right? I was like, hey, look, no, no comment. And then like literally six hours later, you were like, we're still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, oh, uh, yes. Shit. So uh, I, yeah. yeah. So I got your message, and I'm like, oh great. And I pull up the article, and I start reading it, and I think, ooh, hmm. I, <laughs> I don't know if this is good news. And then literally, uh, one of our administrators called because I was working from home that day, and he called me and said, "We're still on. Here's the plan." <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, awesome. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but Ugh. yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, this this is a conversation for another day, the whole standardized testing um, thing. Yeah. But um, you know, I have so many issues with standardized tests in general, and it's actually one of the first things I bring up in Black Student Union every year. We talk about um, you know what standardized tests have held them back because if we talk about the whole standardized testing industry, which and that's what it is. You know, it's it's sure. based around um, middle class white students. Those tests are made for and by them. So it's you know, if you don't fall into a very specific category, you're almost kind of set up to fail. And then so to your point, which is, you know, 2020, our teaching is different. Things are just different. Um, yeah, we can't we can't use the same tests we've been using for 30 years. That's so just not something that's it's not sustainable. You know, it's it's not good or healthy for us. It's not a good measure of data if that's all we're looking at anyway, uh, which you know I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's um, yeah. it's un it's unfortunate, and it's it's one of those things where it's it's going to take well several days this year because of our setup. But it's you know it's one test and we get it out of the way and we prepare as much as we can uh, without actually just teaching to the test because I want my students to be well-rounded well human beings and not just good yep. test takers. And so um, it's just, it's one of those things that just comes with the job. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is an industry, right? Like ETS is a multi-million, if not multi-billion dollar industry. So that kind of thing doesn't go away, you know? One, one of the questions I uh, posed uh, to you for, for this episode was like, are, are there any like post COVID lessons that we are going to take with us and like colleges across the board have become less reliant on standardized tests 
as a, a means for both giving money out but also acceptance. And I think that's positive because the bottom line is certainly high schools, certainly all schools will use that data, but they are only using that data as it's framed as part of career and college readiness. And if it can't predict college readiness anymore, then I don't know. Maybe we're halfway there. Right. Uh, yeah. Right, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. So are there any other, like, I don't know, what, uh, a year from now? Because it seems like by all accounts, most people are saying by the end of the summer, things are going to be relatively back to normal. Um, what are some other lessons do you think we will take out of this? Um, I think I might go back to the Atlantic article that we talked about in a previous episode and talk about the depth of our curriculum as opposed to, I'm not sure the word to use, with maybe. So instead of a thousand different things that we're trying to cover in a school year or in a semester, let's take these really important things like if there's one or two or four things that i want my students to know when they leave my classroom let's explore those things in greater depth as opposed to just being incredibly shallow about a million other things Um, i think that's i think i've done a pretty good job of that this school year i've really let go of things that i think are not super important for the next level or i mean like i don't think i've taught any sort of you know apostrophe and colon lessons this year no i know i haven't because for me like that's that's not something i need to teach right now that doesn't feel important yeah. right now. <laughs> especially because right. yeah. um yeah. like google docs is gonna put that apostrophe in there for you so yeah well that's uh oh dude it, it's like uh choosing what we teach and how we teach it is is probably the most important thing right and it is crazy to me um so we, we, we too are part of lots of different parenting groups. You know, it's just a thing that happens. And at least with one of the parenting groups that my oldest son went to like elementary school with, and we live in a very working class neighborhood that uh, like essentially is right next to the, the wealthiest area north of the river, right? And so Jack always went to the wealthiest elementary school, which is a weird position to be in, you know, like, uh, we were most definitely kind of the, 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 the poor folks, you know, <laughs> and, uh, God, the, the amount of railing that would take place about not teaching cursive amazed me, <laughs> you know, a, my handwriting is garbage to begin with. Uh, but like of all the things like, uh, like, I don't know if they were teaching them all this computer stuff and, they need to know how to write a letter. Like, do they though? Do they? You know, like, uh, come on. Seems man. like a weird hill to die on. Oh, yeah, right. Like a really pretty, like calligraphy hill. You know, like I'm sure, but yeah. So uh, I think the one of the post-COVID lessons that I took out of all of that, because those people don't say that anymore, and I think it's because they have been stuck online for a year, and I'm sure they'll come back. But like. I, I don't know. Maybe our our computer skills, right? Maybe our technology skills that everybody likes to throw under the bus sometimes are are kind of important. <laughs> you know, like maybe uh, maybe not all school is going to be online, and that's not productive. But maybe teaching our kids how to navigate um, relatively complex 
um, software and applications, especially for like corporate discussion like Zoom or Skype. I don't know. Maybe that's more important than how to write a capital <laughs> C in, in cursive. I don't I don't know. I agree with you. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's just me bitching about our, our you know, parent group, though. So <laughs> I will say that I think uh, some students have gotten so much better at troubleshooting or just problem solving in general. Um, I think before, I mean, I, I tried, we've been one-to-one in our school district for a few years now. So our students have had their own personal device. And I feel like when we first got them, there was just a lot of helplessness, you know, like, how do I do this? I mean, there were just constant questions and emails. And now that we're not face-to-face all the time, they may not see me for two or three days. Uh, They may not get an email back from me for a few hours. There's a lot of them figuring things out on their own. And I I Mm -hmm. feel like we were really kind of lacking that pre-COVID. And so I'm kind of hoping some of that carries over post-COVID. Yeah, yeah. Some of that independence or something. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and the thing that used to irritate me about that is, like, kids could Photoshop anything, right? Or they could... uh, put together a TikTok or, you know, whatever. These things that probably with their boomer grandparents would be catastrophically difficult, right? But at the same time, they'd be like, my computer won't turn on. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, have you pressed the power button? <laughs> you know, it was like, what they have a doing? very specific skill set. I mean, they're great yeah. at navigating cell phones, right? I mean, they, I mean, right. it's just sort of intuitive for them. But if you put a desktop, like a PC or a laptop in front of them, it's just so different. Like Gen Z is not with that. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is why I've always argued, like, if we can, harness some of that creative right like they love to create content for themselves right in their small group right and that's the real trick is how how can we harness that and how can we i don't don't know create some marketable skill out of that because the bottom line is you lip-syncing to you know, I, I don't I can't even come up with like a, a kid's band. I don't know, you like know a that. Taylor Swift song. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. We're so old. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm I'm significantly older than you are. So I wouldn't use significantly. Older, <laughs> uh, I have a four where you have a three. So that's significant. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think. Oh, man. Um, well, I can tell you the one thing that occurred to me when I asked that question so my wife and I were talking about it. The one thing that um, I think is going away uh, are snow days, pure, yeah. unadulterated snow days. That doesn't mean like my my son was all bummed out about it. And he's like, oh, man, that will suck. I'll still have to get up. And like maybe you'll have to get up and go to a Zoom, but it's still going <laughs> to be like it'll still be a day that you can go play in the snow. Right. You know, you, you just will maybe have a little bit of work that you have to do. And most importantly for you and I, that means we'll be done with the school year on time. There'll be some yes. predictability with that, which would be that would I don't be know, great, really nice. Yes, yeah. Because as it is, like it's difficult to plan vacation or family stuff when you're like, well, technically the year gets out of May 26th, but but we might have to if, go till June 15th. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So don't book those tickets yet or whatever. So yeah, it is. It is what it is. Well, uh, do you? Uh, do you have any big plans for Christmas or are you going to stick around town? That's uh, pretty much, you know, 
but we, we will be it. home. Actually, Thanksgiving was fantastic. It was just me, my husband, and our son. And I sort yeah. of, sort of joked like, "Hey, can we do this every year? Because this is great." Yeah. <laughs> but he has, he has a really big family. So, um, but no, I think it'll just be us again for Christmas. I, um, his, so my son goes to our parents like daycare wise we decided not Mm -hmm. to put him in daycare this year because of covid so he's already around our parents so i think we're gonna have them come over and i don't know he's three so he loves like christmas lights and wrapping paper and you know he's he's pumped like when we ask him you know what do you want santa to bring you and he says presents like duh mom (laughs) yeah so yeah get with it yeah so (laughs) yeah i think we um we did the same thing. It was just the four of us. Um, my wife's side is very, very big. Mine is, is relatively small. But both of my parents, right before Thanksgiving break, uh, got COVID. So they were like, yeah, they were inside and sick. And, and I was like, well, we won't we won't be going over there. We live like six houses down. So when everything happened in the spring, we kind of all quartered together or whatever. But yeah, it's like Christmas. It's like, do we want to do the big thing? Would we rather be safe? I don't know. My guess is I, can, I have zero evidence of this. No one has told me this. So when this goes out into the, you know, the ether, right, and our, our 12 people listen to this episode <laughs> or whatever, uh, don't be like Tyler said this. It, it is for sure. But my guess is because Thanksgiving works so well, there may be some pressure to do the same post-Christmas? What do you think? I was just talking to some other teachers about this yesterday that, um, you know, we we had the two weeks of completely virtual after Thanksgiving for, like, quarantine reasons and staffing reasons. Seems like it would make sense to do that again after Christmas. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens there. And I I will say, if that happens, then there's no official EOC. So, you know, fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you we'll get our way uh, no matter what, right? right. <laughs> yeah, I dig it. I dig it. Oh, very good, very good. Well, I think that will uh, do it for this episode of the Hybrid Model. Where can they find more of your stuff, Jessica? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Mrs. MRS underscore G underscore writer, R-I-D-E-R. Um, and also on Instagram, Mrs. Dot G dot writer. Very good. Well, you can find more of my stuff at Ty Unsel, where I tweet about uh, the politics of education and horror. Um, or, you know, uh, I, as always, I'm doing the editor gig over at Signal Horizon. So if you like scary movies, that'll be your place. In the meantime, uh, we look forward to talking to you again on the Hybrid Podcast.